Hey, this is Rob, and that's Micaiah, and you are listening to You Forgot One. Today on You Forgot One, Otis Redding Sings Soul, also known as Otis Blue. Micaiah, what do our listeners need to know right up top about the highest ranking Otis Redding album on virtually every list. Sure. Well, it's the third of his albums. Uh, and we talked uh, in our last episode about, you know, the third album being a significant number for, for artists. Um, so here's another one. Uh, it comes out in 1965, which is a big year for, you know, the LP era. So Rubber Soul comes out this year. Highway 61 Revisited comes out this year so there's a lot more emphasis on the LP and not just singles and in the world of soul music Otis Redding becomes kind of known as an LP artist more than someone who's just relying just on singles so this becomes a a very important um, album uh, for that whole era and for soul music and what kind of separates uh, Otis Redding from other soul artists. This was separating from people who come just a little bit before him, you know, James Brown, Sam Cooke, you know, having like a 12 track LP and really making it count as some sort of statement, one singular statement. And I think this album is, you know, it, there, there are a lot of like covers on here, but I think it does make an interesting statement about soul music in 1965. We'll get to that later. Um, this is only one of a handful of Otis Redding albums because he dies tragically at the age of 26. Um, very young. I mean, he's, um, I believe he's the same age of, as Bob Dylan at this time. Mm-hmm. You know, so he's, he's a young man. He's, he's the age of like the Beatles and Dylan. He, you know, he's, he's really, really young, you know, and this is a few years before his death. So he's even, you know, Younger than 26, uh, which is just remarkable. Um, another thing about this album is that it is a, a Southern soul album. Otis Redding is from Georgia, uh, grew up in Macon, and, you know, played the Chitlin Circuit. Um, you know, he was a protege of Little Richard, which I think is why so much of his soul music is uh, very much rooted in rock and roll and gospel, and that's where his soul comes from, unlike other soul artists other other contemporaries of his uh he's he's got that memphis sound he's backed by you know the stacks you know house band um booker t and the mgs and uh, the marquees on the horns and isaac hayes on the piano and isaac hayes on the piano and uh a couple of deep cuts uh co-write credits with isaac hayes you know we talked about muscle shoals a bit with aretha and this is a this is a different kind of category of southern soul music uh, so it's it's on Volt, which is a subsidiary of Stax, uh, which is kind of the one of the you know the iconic soul label in Memphis. You know, this is the time where you have the Sun Studio, where we talked about you know where Johnny Cash came from and Elvis and Jerry Lee Lewis, uh, Carl Perkins, and then you know, and um, Stax um, is you know as important to soul music as sun is to rock and roll and that's where this album is coming from you know so it's um just a, an absolutely iconic record 
and sign of the times in terms of just like, you know, just the incredible amount of music, the caliber of music that's coming out, you know, right there in the mid sixties. In this space and time for as short as his career was, I mean, really he is, he is writing and recording for at most eight years. It's really something how his story plays into so much of Southern soul. And here he is traveling all over the American South, performing to, you know, mostly black audiences and doing this as a young teenager. So this is 16, 17 years old. And it's really this encounter that puts him in front of the guys at Stax that, that gets him connected to the guys connected to Stax. And he releases his very first single, in 1962 at the age of 21 and he will be dead three months after he turns 26. And so the idea that like his entire recording career is 21 to just after 26. And then when you think about all that he has produced, and then you also realize how many of some of his most famous albums are posthumous releases. And so one of the things that you alluded to was his death in 1967. He, he was um, one of the people who died in a plane crash in right outside of Madison, Wisconsin in 1967. And a week before his death, he wrote and recorded sitting on the dock of the bay and finished the majority of that album And what's incredible is that album in its release became the very first ever posthumous album release to reach number one on the Billboard Hot 100 or the R&B charts. Um, It was also his first number one. His his first number one after his death. And, And what's incredible is, like we said, you know, so his first number one comes out after his death. Well, what, of course, came out was all of this stuff had been released on Volt Records, uh, which was a subsidiary of Stax. And what ultimately came out after his death was it actually turned out that Atco, which was a division of Atlantic Records, who he had he had recorded like two singles with, um, essentially owned hit the rights to his entire catalog. Mm-hmm. So... Uh, you know, at the time, Stax Records is already losing money. This is in the in kind of late 60s period of time where Stax Records is really struggling to to turn a profit. They were thinking, hey, you know, even though he, he died tragically, now we have a number one record and number one song. And now his back catalog is selling. Here they are selling all of these records only to find out that an entirely different company owned all the rights to his catalog. And so paying uh, Stax Records, paying Atlantic Records, the the licensing fees that they owed to Otis Redding or, or to essentially that they owed to Atlantic Records for Otis Redding songs is ultimately the thing that bankrupts Stax Records. Yeah, I mean, Stax is just a tragic history. I mean, almost from start to finish. I mean, that is a, that is a struggling. It's not even there anymore. I mean, it's yeah. it, it's, you know, it's. You know, and I lived in that area, and it's something that people still talk about as being kind of one of the great 
tragedies of that region. Yeah, it's it's a real it's a real bummer. But let's not stay in, in, in bummer land. Let's kind of reset and get to the personal Rob. What's kind of your relationship to Otis Redding and his music? You know, like a lot of people who are in my generation, um, and, and, and it's such a classic famous song. I don't know that there's anyone maybe who this isn't true for, but Otis Redding sitting on the dock of Bay was a song I heard constantly as a child. Um, and so in, if for a long time, that's just who I thought Otis Redding was. I thought he was the sitting on the dock of the Bay guy. And then I can still remember the first time I listened to that album all the way through and his, uh, his song that he does with Carla Thomas, that's actually on his Kings and Queens albums that, that is here as well is the song tramp, which is on the, which is on the B side of dock of the Bay, the album. And I loved that. And then as I just became more and more fascinated with and infatuated with music, like a lot of people, what I found out was, man, some of my favorite songs were written by Otis Redding. And so also, I, you know, I was around in the early 90s when the Black Crows had a huge hit with their cover of Hard to Handle. And then, you know, so, of course, I'm listening to this thinking, man, this sounds really great. It sounds like some old song. Why does it sound that way? And then you realize, oh, you know, the Robinson brothers didn't write this. Otis Redding wrote this. You know, you 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 look at the liner notes of uh, Aretha Franklin album. You know, you're looking at Never Loved a Man the Way I Love You, and you see that big first single, Respect, R-E-S-P-E-C-T, and you look in the liner notes, and that's not Aretha, that's Otis Redding. And so the more I found out that Otis Redding was behind so many songs that I love, it drove me more into Otis's music. And of course, in, you know, in growing up in the CD era and then kind of in the streaming era, Otis Redding's music was not hard to find, but tracking down Otis Redding vinyl has been kind of a, a real obsession for the last few years. And right before we started recording this season, you and I both got our hands on copies of this album for the first time. Yeah, I, I got really lucky. I found an original copy from 1965, a mono press of this record. And um, I've got lucky in other ways. I got um, an original copy of Sin Dock of the Bay and original copy of a dictionary of soul. And, um, there, you don't come across a lot of um, original Otis Redding records, so when they appear, you kind of have to grab and go. Yeah, because they they don't. Yeah, they're well, what, what is what does Otis Redding mean to you? What is it? What is it that this album in particular means to you? So, again, I mean, being from the South and having parents who are baby boomers, this just is part of like the kind of music I just heard growing up a lot. Al Green, Otis, but and also everyone at Motown, you know, James Brown, uh, Sam Cooke, you know, like you just hear Aretha, you just hear all of kind of the soul hits a lot. Um, and I feel like for me, as I got older, you know, I, I guess Motown was kind of my bag when I was little. But as I got older, 
um, Otis and Al Green have kind of been where I've, I've landed in terms of being my favorites. And I think it's because, as I mentioned earlier, kind of their emphasis on the LP and not just like having the best single and like winning the week or winning that month. Like that, that Barry Gory system of just like really cranking out, you know, hot singles, but making really great lasting LPs. So I think those two artists have just like great longevity for me when it comes to Otis Redding is not just the LPs and the songs, but the, the live performance on uh, DA Penny Baker's music documentary, you know, Monterey pop from the Monterey pop festival, which was just before the plane crash also. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, it's just, it's a short set, 15 to 20 minute long set. Um, I think he was there because of the Rolling Stones, I think, and the, and the Beatles both really liked him, and he had been covering the Rolling Stones and the Beatles. Uh, we'll get to a Stones cover when we talk about this record. Uh, but he had been touring Europe and playing Beatles and Stones songs there, and so um, he was kind of the first soul artist to break actually outside of the South and outside of Detroit, outside the Chitlin Circuit, by going to play Whiskey A Go-Go out West and playing Monterey Pop Festival. Um, I mean, it's also interesting that this record has a white woman on the cover. You know, so he is someone who, unlike when we're talking about James Brown, was seeking the largest audience possible. And he, he had that in, but he wanted to be the king of soul. That's what he wanted. And that meant not just playing to one audience, but playing to the largest audience as possible. And because of this concert film, um, you know, the Monterey Pop Festival, um, you know, that is one of the iconic festivals in the history of pop music. Um, And so he kind of has had this legacy where he continues to perform and play for the largest audience possible because it's been just, you know, trapped in amber um, with that that wonderful concert footage, you know, in in the actual documentary, I think he only plays a song or two. Um, But then in the eighties, they, um, for, cause Hendrix was also at Monterey pop. That's where he says a guitar on fire. But with Hendrix dying at 27, Otis dying at 26, that in the eighties, they had cut um, the versions of the full Jimi Hendrix set and full Otis Redding set and released um, both of those as uh, a record eventually also in the seventies, I think it was. So now you can find that whole concert. Uh, and I like to revisit that uh, more than probably any of any of the individual LPs is rewatching um, that, that set. And again, it's just five songs, but you know, it's, it opens with shake, which is on here. Um, three of the songs that are on this record are on there. And then, you know, tenderness is the closer, which just destroys, you know, Man, it's so good. Well, you know what, Micaiah? Let's take a break. Let's let our listeners hear from our sponsors, Mirror Coffee Roasters and Spotify for Podcasters. And then we'll be back to talk some more about Otis Blue and why we chose this particular album out of all of his incredible work. I want to take a second and tell you a little bit about Mirror Coffee Roasters. Mirror Coffee Roasters are pursuing excellence from coffee, farm, 
to cup. The goal at Mirror Coffee Roasters has always been to use coffee as a tool for change. Whether that's a bag of coffee on your kitchen counter or creating a sustainable, human-focused sourcing practice that goes far beyond generic marketing labels. No matter how you enjoy your coffee, Mirror Coffee Roasters is here to help you on your journey and elevate your coffee experience. I want to encourage you to go to their website, mirrorcoffeeroasters.com today, and check out their coffee box a four-bag sampler box of some of their best coffees from Colombia, Guatemala, and Ethiopia. Check out Mirror Coffee Roasters today. Micaiah, the Rolling Stone 500 Greatest Albums of All Time list, the original one that came out in 2003, had five Otis Redding albums on it. Otis Blue is the one that is ranked overwhelmingly the highest. In the 2003 Rolling Stone list, it comes in at 74. In the 2012 revision, it comes in at 78. But in the 2020 list, a list that had the habit of ranking soul artists and ranking in particular black artists, um, many of whom who had gone underappreciated for long periods of time, much higher on the 2020 list. Otis blue actually falls a hundred spots to 178. What's interesting is the NME list. The first NME list ranked it as 35th as the greatest albums of all time. And uh, Robert Criscow, of course, the famous um, village voice music critic who has written um, some of the, some of the best uh, music journalism that's out there. Uh, Robert Criscow said that Otis blue was the first great album by one of soul's few reliable long form artists. Essentially, Robert Criscow would go on to say that Otis Blue is the first truly great soul album. Otis Blue is an album that has been written about extensively. 
And as you would expect, any any great album that isn't this important and has kind of has so much crossover success, you would expect to be written about. But because of that, a lot of friends of the podcast have have written about this album. And in particular, uh, Stephen Deusner, who is a friend of the pod, wrote about this album for the Memphis Flyer. Uh, and his his exact quote is song for song. It's difficult to imagine a better soul record. And I couldn't agree more. So, Micaiah, let's start off by talking about what becomes a phenomenal closing track on Dock of the Bay, but is a perfect opening track on Otis Blue, Otis Redding's original Old Man Trouble. Yeah, I mean, this is one of the best songs in his catalog, straight up. Um, what I what I love about this record and this song is that uh, it starts with the electric guitar, and then you get the horns. Mm-hmm. You know, so, like this, this is like like oh, like what what is the Memphis sound? Here it is. Like this is this is it. This is what it sounds like. It's hot, you know. It's it's thick. It's dense. You know, it's like it's like the horns are trying to blow through the humid, like the humidity. You know, it's I love it. This is this is the sound that that I go for. Yeah, um, it was a song that charted in 1965, number four among the uh, term, which of course we no longer have anymore. But in 1965, uh, the way that Billboard charted it was on the black singles chart. It went to number four, uh, number 35 on the pop singles chart. And all of that, while being the B-side for the huge hit of the album, track number two, what a perfect opener to this album. Uh, and especially, I think, the way that it forms. Um, if if side A of Otis Blue is really the best that we get of not just Otis as a performer, and he was an incredible performer. He was an incredible interpreter of other people's soul music. Um, but him as a songwriter is on full display on the A side of this album, considering that it opens with Old Man Trouble and closes with I've Been Loving You Too Long. this track but like i said it was the b-side for the a-side single respect micaiah you and i have talked about this we've actually talked about this song already last season of the podcast and we both essentially agreed that this song belongs to aretha now and it's a strange thing that happens 
for a song uh, written by an artist who is well known and beloved for one of their songs to be to belong to someone else. But but we've also talked about this happening with Jimi Hendrix and Bob Dylan. Essentially, Jimi Hendrix owns all on the Watchtower now. That's his song. That's not Bob Dylan's song anymore. Right. Yeah. I mean, this this, this happens. Um, but I mean, what, what's fascinating about this song is how the meaning changes based on who's singing it and how they're singing and how they're performing it. You know, so if you like, you know, Aretha's is considered to be like a feminist anthem. And Otis's is, is not a feminist anthem. Uh, it's not a sexist anthem, but it's different. You know what I mean? Um, so it's, yeah, it, it's just one of those, and it's not a song that he gave up on. You know, he, he plays this on the Monterey, the Monterey set too, and, and, and other live albums. So it's, it's not a song that he just, you know, gave up on. Um, huge song, uh, a great song. Um, but yeah, it's just, it's not his anymore. Uh, it just isn't. Um, and Aretha, the way that she interprets the song and makes it her own is, you know, it's, it's what, what's interesting about pop music at that time, you know, it, people aren't thinking of these songs as cover songs. You know, these, these people are interpreting songs mm-hmm. or they're rearranging songs or they're reimagining songs. Dylan's doing this. Uh, the Beatles have been doing this. The Beach Boys have been doing these. So these are people who are reimagining and reinterpreting songs, not just simply covering songs, you know? And that's part of what I think made that era of music very exciting. Um, and that's part of what makes the rest of this album work because after this, there's only one more song written by Oates Redding. Um, you know, it's because this is an era where you you can be celebrated not just for writing your own material, but how you interpret other people's material. Uh, but it is kind of one of the great ironies that, you know, right at the top of this record essentially is probably the greatest example of someone else taking someone else's song only a couple of years later, reimagining it and, you know, making it her own and being maybe one of the most iconic recordings of all time here's otis redding and he essentially is the person who creates the skeleton for what rolling stone considers to be the best written song of all time i'm with you it's it's a better song in aretha's hands there's part of me that wants an album of nothing but otis redding written songs mm-hmm. and, and yet at the same time some of the biggest artists then and some of the biggest artists today have have done incredible work essentially performing songs written by someone else interpreting the songs written by someone else mm-hmm. and so it, it's it's strange i feel like the kind of the the cultural trends that allow us to like value or devalue the ability to do that but however you look at it otis redding wrote this song and even though Aretha takes it and makes it her own and does tremendous things to it in her arrangement it is still Otis Redding's song what 
there are covers that Otis Redding does on this album. And again, he wouldn't think of them as covers. He would think of them as him doing kind of his interpretation of these very well-known soul songs or even rock songs. But there's also on this 11-track album, three songs that are done very consistent to their original performance by their original artist. And the reason for that is that the original artist was Sam Cooke, who had died just a few months before Mm -hmm. Otis Redding went in to the studio to record this album. And the first one of those three Sam Cooke songs that comes up is the third song of the album and Sam Cooke's best song change is going to come. Yeah. A song that we've also talked about already on the podcast because Aretha also had it um, on. I never loved a man the way I love you. And now is that her song? I don't think so. Um, that's still Sam Cooke's song. That's still going to, I think that one was with Sam Cooke, you know, uh, that being said, you know, I think, uh, it's inclusion here. Like you said, is important because I think what this record is, is a snapshot of black music in 1965. Um, we said the same thing about, uh, James Brown live at the Apollo. And we, we meant that mostly from a performance perspective, right? It's, it's, it's the Apollo Theater, which is one of the most iconic venues in, in black music and music history, you know, and, and he's playing, you know, his hits from that time. This is much wider, has, has a much wider reach in terms of capturing the scope of black music from the last 10 or so years. You know, so uh, change is going to come. I mean, this is a is a civil rights anthem. You know, and it, it is it is honoring uh, Sam Cooke, who was not just a great musician, but a very uh, mindful, thoughtful activist. Pers- uh, activist who uh, was friends with uh, who befriended you know Malcolm X. Um, you know, and also from from Mississippi. You know, so a fellow you know also from the South. Uh, but I think its inclusion here is great, and also. This is a great version of this song. This this is I this is an incredible version of this song. This it's is very faithful to the original though. It is. Um but it has an energy mm-hmm. to it that Sam Cook doesn't give it. The string uh prelude to the most famous Sam Cooke version of the song, the one that we all know, it, it 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 has more energy when you take that out of it. That that string prelude removed and placed in different instruments is is a becomes a very different song. It it right. becomes a very Memphis song in his hands. Well, the strings are something we would we would uh, attribute to Sweet Soul mm-hmm. and, and Sam Cooke. You know he he's you send me. You know, he's, he's a sweet guy. He has a beautiful voice. Um, Otis has a powerful voice mm-hmm. that Sam Cooke doesn't have. So he's bringing a power that Sam Cooke um, doesn't have um, in the way that Otis uses his voice. Sam Cooke's version is powerful, um, 
but not for the same reason the Otis Redding version is because he doesn't have strings he has guitar he has horns right so he he's bringing something else and that something else is more where it comes back to him working with little richard it's more gospel it's more rock and roll it's 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 dirtier you know is again something we talk about all the time that's sacred and the profane right uh that genre ray charles you know is, is the most famous for having done that um so the, I, I think this is a, a great version of the song that unlike respect, we can't say like, yeah, but Aretha owns it. Um, Sam Cooke still owns this. Yeah. Um, but not so much so that when you listen, like when you hear respect, you're like, yeah, but it's not Aretha's version. You, you want to sing Aretha's version when you, his, when you listen to Otis's version. You're perfectly content and, and glad to be listening to the Otis Redding version of Change is Gonna Come. next song um the solomon burke song down in the valley i think is is kind of the the perfect one two combination mm-hmm. you know on this a side so you get a sam cook song followed by a solomon burke song sam cook who has just died who is revered by this entire generation of of soul and r&b singers and performers even though Otis is performing this as Otis, he's not trying to do an impression of Sam Cooke. He's, he's yeah. using his voice, the way he sings, the way the Stax performers are going to do this song. But changes, but change going to come is, is very faithful in, in almost like an honorific kind of way to Sam Cooke. But when you get the Solomon Burke song down in the valley, Otis is going, nope, I'm making this mine. It is him 
he it, it's it's different from the original he's making changes to it he is making this solomon burke song his own yeah no absolutely and 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 not with malice i mean no no but uh but he is i mean he's he's owning um and this is i mean it's one of my probably one of my top five favorite songs on this record uh is, is this one and it's yeah be, and it's because it is one of those very trademark southern soul memphis soul songs it, it just it you know um so it has kind of all those kind of things you expect to hear um when you hear a you know a southern when you when you're told you're being, you're listening to a southern soul record this five track run on the side one i think is why it's on our list i mean these are five just like exceptionally written recorded and performed tracks i mean this is i think this is these first five are what gives it its longevity yeah i agree down in closing track of side of of side a which is not only in my opinion the best song on this album i think this is the best song otis redding ever wrote i've been loving you too long a perfect soul song a perfect blues song um it's i mean the the beats of it the power in his voice the emotion in his voice. There is no one who can do this song like Otis Redding. And I don't think that there's anyone else who could have written this song. I've been loving you too long. My favorite song on this album. Micaiah, what do you think of the side one closer? It's also my favorite song on this record. And I would, I believe it's my favorite Otis Redding song period. Um, And this is the one that's used in the Monterey pop film um out you know not the the full concert but when you actually watch the monterey pop you know that whole film not just the otis set otis plays monterey things what that's called um so if anyone listening has not watched otis redding perform this song at the monterey pop festival i mean just like who like it like that that is the definition of soul music right and and it's the record is amazing the the the, the recording is amazing but what happens to the song live is is a whole other animal and it is it is everything i love about otis redding 
you know, Sitting on Dock of the Bay, of course, is like another like definitive Otis song. Tenderness is, of course, another definitive Otis writing song. Uh, but this here for me is 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 what gets me coming back to Otis writing is, is this right here. I've been loving you too long to stop about site two there's one more thing about this record that we can talk about oh well and i I actually wanted to mention that as well and i hope i hope we're thinking the same thing i bet we are this This album was made in one day like with the exception of one song a 24-hour period yeah july 9th and 10th 19 1965 this entire album was made in a 24-hour period save for one song so a lot of single takes here. Yeah. Um, well, it, it, and, and also it's the way Stacks record. So it's not just a lot of single takes. It's, it's live, it's live takes. So this yes. is not, so oftentimes uh, when a record is being made, it's tracked instrument by instrument. 
but there's also live tracking where you set up a studio and everyone plays and you record all of the instruments all together at the same time. And the beautiful thing about that is that you, you get not just the instruments all together, but you get microphone bleed, which is when you get the microphones picking up other instruments, get a little bit of bleed from other instruments in the room, which creates this beautiful, warm, natural reverb effect. And it's one of the things that Stacks did essentially for, for money saving reasons, but it's also what makes the Stacks house band, which is Booker T and the MGs such a phenomenal live band because they are one take studio musicians. They, they have to get it right the first time because the more tape they spend, the more money it costs in a record label that's already losing money risks losing even more money. So they do this entire record in two days. A 24 hour period is 99% of the record. Um, But I mean that, but that, that is a testament to these musicians, right? These, these are the most seasoned musicians in this region of the country. Okay. Uh, you could not find a more rehearsed and just incredible band um, and horn section with the Marquis mm-hmm. and Otis himself. You know, everyone has to be on point. Everyone has to be in the pocket at all times. When you press, press record, you know, you gotta be ready to go and lay it down. And that, that gives it an immediacy, that gives it an edge, um, and that's where the soul comes from. You don't have time to overthink things. You don't have time to be like, oh, should I, should we retake this? Should I, oh, you know what I, maybe, maybe we should have done? It's like, no, you got to be ready when we hit record, you know? Um, you have to find it in the moment. You know, you can't, and if you think about it later, well, bring that to the live show. You know what I mean? So... You know, they're, they're, it gives it this intensity and this immediacy that's missing from a, a lot of music that's made today, um, I would argue. And what makes the music of, of this period a little bit more exciting, you can kind of feel the excitement of the room when you go and listen to, you know, these older records. This one being no exception. And, uh, and that track that we just finished talking about, um, I've been loving you too long, um, is, is just filled with that, that energy and that intensity. That This is what we mean when we talk about soul music. Well, if side A of this album is a celebration of Otis Redding, the songwriter and performer, um, side two is definitely a celebration of Otis Redding, the performer and interpreter. And before we even get into these six songs, the thing that all six of these songs have in common is that all six of these songs have already been top 40 hits for another artist. So, so let's start, let's start with the second of the three Sam Cooke songs on the album shake. And again, this, this is a sound that's more faithful to Sam Cooke than traditional Memphis uh, soul. Um, and this also, but you know, this is a, a crowd pleaser. Mm-hmm. Um, even after this record, I mean, this is one that you kind of be like, I feel, you know, there's to, I don't, I don't want to talk about Harry Potter, but I'm going to, I feel like every performer is a Slytherin mm-hmm. uh, in, the, in that they all have this ambition. So even though he's like, I'm going to honor Sam cook, and I'm going to do change is going to come. There's a part of me that I think that like Sam cook dies. He's like, I'm going to record shake. And that is going to be mine now. Like that's, it's up for grabs. And 
I don't, I don't, I, I cannot say for certain for certain that that's his mindset, but it is what happens. I mean, like this is something that you know he opens with shake at the Monterey Papas. Yep. You know what I mean? So like, this is not. I don't think it's when he's saying this is mine now, but it, it's when it's like, well, if Sam's not around to perform it. This goes in my arsenal. You know what I mean? Like, well, even, but I mean, even by this time, I mean, by the time you get to June of 67, when he's performing this at the Monterey Pop Festival, again, he's, he has now recorded a version of this song two years earlier on Otis Blue. But in the period between him recording it on Otis Blue and him performing it at Monterey Pop, the Animals have recorded a cover of it. I can Tina Turner have recorded a cover of it. The Supremes have done it. Like every, everyone has done a version of this song. And it, you know, for and only two people get referred to as the King of Soul. Yeah. Sam Cooke, Otis Red. That's right. His version of it rules. Um, but like you were saying, I think that this side too is why it has fallen out of favor because mm-hmm. you get to the second track and it's my girl. Everyone likes my girl and his, his version was a, a hit. It, it sold well. Yeah. This, they, they, they moved singles of, of this recording but, you know, as you said, written by Smokey Robson, famously performed by The Temptations. Yeah, so you see him looking at, at Motown, Hitsville, USA, and coming from, you know, being in Soulsville, USA, and it's going to be like, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go for both. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? I, I'm, I'm coming for both of them. You know, and this, I, and I don't mean to make him sound like this overly ambitious guy, and this is probably just like stuff we're imposing on this record, but you know, there, there, he's a young guy and this, this is a like 200 pounds, six foot one. He's a big guy. He's an ambitious guy. He's an exciting guy, but there's a sweetness to him too. And something very fun about him. He's not like a self serious guy either, which is what I think makes his version of soul. So fun. It's not, it's not, overtly sexual or hyper-sexualized like Isaac Hayes will be and James Brown is. And it's not, you know, there, there's just something more fun and energetic about what he does. And just so pure, purely soulful that when you get to something like my girl, it kind of boxes him in a little bit that he, he's not really performing at the height of his powers, 
uh, because he's boxed into what's kind of a, you know, a mild-tempered Motown song. talking about how you know him him essentially doing his version of these songs in in the way that maybe it has led to some people you know just forgetting what a great album what a great album this is he he goes for on the third track of side b his third and last sam cook cover and he goes for wonderful world and of all the great sam cook songs this is the one that feels the least at home in Otis Redding's voice. Mm-hmm. Um, it is it is phenomenally performed musically. The 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 Stax band, their version, their interpretation essentially of Wonderful World is really interesting. But it is like you said, it's it's Sam Cooke. It's it even the lyrics of it. It's so sweet soul that it almost feels too powerful and like. It, it just doesn't sit lyrically in Otis Redding's voice. And so it's, you know, I would say arguably it's the least successful of, of kind of his interpretations on side B, which is unfortunate because Otis blue comes out at the same time that the British band Herman's hermits does a cover of this song in the hermits, the Herman's hermits, cover of wonderful world tops the charts in the uk and is a top 10 song in the u.s during the same period of time that you're you're getting this otis redding cover of it so herman's hermits takes a sweet soul song and in some ways whitewashes it and then at the same time you have otis redding doing it with almost too much power um and and so it, it becomes you know 1965 these kind of two competing Sam Cook covers of the uh, covers of Sam Cook songs. Uh, it must've been wild to, to be alive during that time. Yeah. Such a strange time for music, but it's, it's such a good song that like, no matter who covers it, it's going to be a hit. Mm-hmm. It's like it's going to, I mean, if you're not as long as you're a decent singer and you got a decent band, it's going to make the hot 100. Cause I mean, it's, it's, it's that great a song. Yeah pretty hard to screw that one up but i i like that you know 
I like the ambition on this the Memphis band being like, well, we don't have everything that Sam Cooke had at his disposal when we make this record. So we're going to go for it with, with this group of guys. Yeah. We're going to make it work. And, it, and it's good. What I, w- what I would say, personal opinion, I think this is probably the least successful song on the album. And still, if you put this on right now, you wouldn't turn it off. You you know, it's it's a, it's a good enough song that you'd still happily listen to it multiple times, which is saying a whole lot about this album. I completely agree. It's like everything where, like, the critiques are like, yeah, it's My Girl, The Temptations, Wonderful World, but not as good as, like, but when this side two is on and this stuff is playing, I'm as happy as ever. Like, I... I'm not skipping any of this. I'm so happy it's on. And I'm not even thinking like, I should listen to the Sam Creek version and stuff. You know, like, I'm I'm happy to be here. I don't know much about my history now. Don't know much about my ology. Don't know much about the science. about the side two more broadly uh, i'm gonna take on Smokey robinson and i'm gonna take on motown and the temptations and i'm gonna take on sam cook you know i I'm, I'm gonna take all this on because i'm in my own songs and you know so i there's there is something really great about this being just like in a, a very effective accurate exciting uh snapshot of black music at this time and i'm gonna use this uh as a chance to segue into the the fourth track on side two, which is uh, "Rock Me Baby," which is a straight up blues number, yeah, and a BB King. And and what's interesting is BB King obviously is is a very well known blues artist at the time. Um, you know, BB King has already had um, two or three pretty big crossover uh, hits into. Uh, into rock and into soul and into R&B. But he, you know, still very much a blues musician. And in some ways, uh, like a lot of great blues guitarists, is is thought of more for his unique guitar sound and tone than he is almost thought of as, as a great singer. I think B.B. King is a great singer as well. Um, but you realize the difference between how B.B. King sings and how Otis Redding sings when Otis does this song. Because this is one, again, the, the Memphis guys are not playing this as a blues number. They are, they are making it a soul number. But the way Otis sings this song, it's, it's almost like Otis is showing B.B. King, by the way, this is how you sing. Yeah, that could be true. I mean, and B.B. also is someone who's very much associated with Memphis as much mm-hmm. as he is 
Chicago and you know, you know so yeah, BB's interesting because you know he when it comes to those early as you know he's not Muddy Waters and Howlin' Wolf, but by 1965, I mean he kind of is the electric blues guy. Yeah, um, and his best album comes out in 1965, I think. So uh, Live at the Regal. Yeah, great album. Uh, which is you know so you know uh, it's kind of him really looking at he being Otis Redding looking at uh, not just soul but rhythm and blues and very much specifically straight up blues here you can rock me happens next uh, the penultimate song here is uh the uh, the unlikely cover mm-hmm. yeah i was gonna say for it and it's one of those things we really have to think about the history of music and that's kind of what you were setting up yeah because if if this is an album essentially about black music in the 1960s mm-hmm. the rolling stones are not who we'd expect to see on this of, now, of all, you know, of him, of him doing Sam Cooke and Smokey Robinson and Solomon Burke and BB King, mm-hmm. Mick Jagger and Keith Richards are not the songwriters you'd expect to hear on this yeah. album. But, and yet, I there is something so powerful in Otis's performance, and and I think the Stax musicians taking this song, whose whose roots are all all around them the, the the roots of this rolling stone song are uh, it's it's all mississippi delta and so the idea that these memphis artists these memphis musicians essentially are are reinterpreting already this interpretation of their own music right um it's it's just so fascinating and, and in some ways it really kind of shows you i think that if 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 race uh if racism what was not what it was in the 1960s and 
black artists could be as successful as white artists doing the same music. Um, it really reveals to you how interesting um, kind of big commercial rock music would have been um, if it had been led, not just uh, not just uh, influenced by, but really led by these phenomenal black musicians in the American South. And that's what you hear on the cover of Satisfaction by Otis Redding and the guys from Memphis. Yeah, no, it's a fascinating choice and a great cover. And this is a one where when Otis would perform it, some people would hear the Stones version and think that the Stones actually stole it from him in some cases. So there was a time in 1965 where he owned it and it was his. Yeah. You know? um, but it, yeah, it's, just, it's, just, it's, a, it's an interesting thing. You know, um, when the Beatles came to America, uh, the number one person they wanted to meet was Little Richard. When the Stones came to America, um, the first person they wanted to meet was Howlin' Wolf. And when they played Shindig in 1965, uh, they were asked who they want to be on the show with them. They said Howlin' Wolf. You know, so the the whole thing about the British invasion was, you know, the, these these white boys talk about like, well, we're not doing anything new. We're just taking Little Richard, Chuck Berry. Uh, Robert Johnson, Willie Dixon, you know, we're, we're, we're bringing that sound back to America. Like it's, it's not a new sound. Like this is our understanding of that. And then you have Otis Rain be like, okay, well, this is our understanding of that. The song that is chosen to close this album couldn't be better because on side B you, you are, you're taking this journey, Sam cook, Motown, Sam cook, BB King, the rolling stones. Uh-huh. And then we come back to a, a person who at this point in history has really become pretty obscure in early Stax artist, his two biggest songs were hits for other artists, um, much more than they were for him. But he released the single You Don't Miss Your Water in 1961 on Stax record, became his only hit until in 1967, he releases his album The Soul of a Bell. And the best song on Soul of a Bell, Do Right Woman, Do Right Man, 
is covered by Aretha Franklin two months after the album comes out and becomes a huge hit for her. Yeah. Um, but William Bell, who's from Memphis, wrote and recorded in Memphis, was playing with another band in New York and essentially wrote the song about missing Memphis. And he gets back to Memphis in 1961, records the song, records it thinking that it's going to be for a demo, doesn't realize that Stax is going to release it as a single. And and really becomes one of, like I said, the only two songs that William Bell is really known for. And neither one do we know for his version. And the reason is because this song in, in Otis Redding's soul is so much better. Um, it is it is a song that Otis Redding makes all his own, and it makes the perfect closer to this album to center us right back. We've made this journey through side B, through kind of the the whole of of popular soul and R and B music in the early '60s, and now we've returned back to Memphis, where uh, where Otis is really at home. Um, even though he's you know even though he's from Macon, Georgia. He's really at home here in Memphis and sounds the best he ever sounds uh, with with this Stax team behind him. And this song is the perfect conclusion, in my opinion, to this album. What do you think of You Don't Miss Your Water? I think um, other than Satisfaction, I think it's the the best song on side two. And I agree, right? It's it's that perfect. It's it's bringing all back home, uh, to quote the, the name of another record from 1965. Uh, yeah, it's it's back to Memphis. Like we we all right, we we got we went we went pretty far out there, right? We did Sam Cooke. We went to Detroit, Chicago, all the way to England, right? Let, let's let's reel it in, right? And really really knock it out of the park on this one, you know. And that's exactly what it does. But you know, the other side of this is Otis, as we've mentioned many times before, dies only a couple of years later. William Bell went to the Grammy five years ago. Yeah. He, he he continues to to make music. He's not the name Otis Redding is, um, but he went to the Grammy in, in, in 2017. You know, so this is, you know, there's um, uh, two sides of that, that coin of what legacy means and what it means to be an artist, one who dies young and one who, who stays in the game long enough to kind of get theirs later in life, you know? Um, so it's kind of a, kind of a great, kind of statement on on that as well uh, on 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 legacy yeah he won he at set he was uh, 78 years old at the time and that's incredible you know yeah. that's i i i kind of love that mm-hmm. um that 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 the, that win has nothing to do with this album but thinking about this album and thinking about legacy and thinking about the two guys you know the the singer and the author on this iconic album, you know, um, you know, it, there's something that's very oddly kind of cathartic and, mm-hmm. you know, just very interesting about that. Those, those two, those two uh, artists and legacy and their mortalities. I don't know. Maybe, maybe I'm finally getting older. I'm starting to think about death a little bit more. I don't know, but in the, Yeah. 
Includes this record, and and I think that, you know, maybe maybe it's fallen out of favor because people see that and they go, "That's not the Temptations version. That's not the Rolling Stones version. Those three songs are not the Sam Cooke version. That's not the Aretha version." And now that's more than half the album. So what's that leave you with? The three original songs in the closing track, those are awesome. Okay, that's four songs. That's four awesome songs. It's like, yeah, you know, that's. If you're looking at the back of the cover, if you're looking at the wiki, Wikipedia page, that's how it looks. Mm-hmm. But listen to this record. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, the the record holds up. Uh, the record is incredible, especially the side one is particularly exceptional. But through understanding the record as the first great soul LP, mm-hmm. bringing soul music into the realm like as significant as like you know a rock album or a jazz album a love supreme by coltrane comes out in 65 you know you get rolling two rolling stones two beatles and two Dylan records in 1965 i think two birds records come out so, you know it's like it's it's a hey this as in this is as important as white music right the, the one that like all the music critics are have all their attention on is this burgeoning rock music you know, like is as important as that. And I think because it's an LP and not just like, Oh yeah, he has one hit song, you know? Oh, two hit songs. Great. He has two, two hit songs uh, a year. You know, that's, that doesn't have a lot of, you know, lasting power, staying power in, in, in the consciousness, the zeitgeist, you know? So I think there's this being one of the important, you know, soul LPs, elevating soul music into something that you know really sets the groundwork for al green 
and and for the progressive soul music of the city it's like hey soul lps are important you know i think it does that i think it is an important snapshot of black music um from different places in america and reappropriating what the british invasion was doing also and that being a statement about black music but also accepting right this this music from from these lads in england you know and for where he's for where he wants to go with his career i mean he has a white woman on the cover right that that's kind of an interesting thing you know i, I don't i don't know what else to say about that that is what it is. it's not his face that's on the cover like other records of his it's a white woman and maybe that's why a lot of white people then and maybe still now are willing to look at that and be like i'll open that one up i don't know you know um but i think this is this is a fascinating record um that i uh yeah th- th- those are my final thoughts i i don't know that i have any thoughts more than than what we have shared already um I think when it comes down to Otis Redding, I, I, again, we talked about this. I, I understand that, that thought process of writer of music versus interpreter of music, especially when there are songs that end up becoming, you know, more famous or, or are, are already hits for most of these artists um, before he's doing them. I, I get all of that. But I also think that the context of that is important because really from 58 until 67, that's most of what these record labels are doing yeah. is that, you know, if someone, if someone records a hit for that record label and the, and the label owns that record, then every artist on that label is going to do a version of that. Right, I right. mean, and, and so essentially like for, you know, for as often as we think about music in Memphis, you know, we think about stacks, but we also think about sun and that's what sun was doing. I mean, that's, that's all of the first, what seven Elvis Presley albums is just him re-recording other, other sun artists music. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I mean, like in, in, so to a certain extent, like, the the context of that is important. I think we need to recognize that that was pretty normative thing that like, it wasn't something anyone would have looked down their nose at at the time, but I, mean, I also, all the, all the early Beatles records are. Yeah. Covers. Absolutely. In, in, until like this year, like this is the year where like, it's starting to fade out, mm-hmm. but only for like a couple of like the most seminal artists. Yeah. Like, like the Beatles, you know, this, it, this just is the norm. Even yeah, I mean, Dylan right now, even though all of his stuff is original, it's being covered by everyone else. Well, and then even thinking about like the, him doing the cover of the Rolling Stones Satisfaction, like the first four Rolling Stones albums are half covers. More. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's the same thing as like three original Stone songs and then a bunch of covers. It's, it's the same model. Yeah. And and so again, like I, I, I think that if we're willing to say those Rolling Stones albums are great or those Beatles albums are great or those Elvis albums are great. Um, That can't be a reason to take anything away from this Otis Redding album. And, you know, you and I in prep for, in preparation for this episode, you know, we both were putting together kind of uh, our own Otis Redding great 28s and top tens and all that. And I will tell you for someone who their entire recording career 
is is about seven years long man to have a great 28 to have a, a you know 28 songs that that we would consider to be among his best um to have a catalog that good in that short a period of time blows my mind yeah, i mean it was not it was not difficult getting to 88 or getting to 28 no not at all was scaling it down to 20 oh absolutely and that and that's the thing is that then you're also looking at like here's you know here's a person as well because again and this is a this is a Stax records thing this is a volt records thing it's it's trying it's record labels that are losing money trying to make the most money they can when they have something that's a hit mm-hmm. so there's also songs of his that across his albums and across different singles and b-sides you can find four or five different versions of some of his best songs so then it becomes a thing too of like oh what you know like what's your favorite version of old man trouble like what's what's your favorite version of this song um and you can play that game with with otis redding as well but for me um otis blue i think is is the right pick um i i think you know, the, the whiskey, a go, go record, which interestingly enough, I'd never had on vinyl before today. I went, I went record shopping this afternoon and found a Japanese import of, uh, of him at the whiskey, a go, go. Um, and so I finally now own that record on vinyl. So I'm excited to listen to that tonight. Um, but as much as I love that live performance, I think the live performance might be the best, uh, picture of who Otis Redding is, um, but like we said, listener, um, if you really want to see what Otis Redding was like, go on YouTube, watch him performing at the Monterey Pop Festival. Um, it's easy to find. Um, it is worth your time. And uh, that's that's a great picture. But if we're, if we're looking at a great album, especially a great soul album to have on the list, I think Otis Blue um, is, is an easy choice and one I am confidently standing behind. So, Makai, what about you? I think it's one of the best albums of 1965. Um, yeah, I would say I'm, I'm probably in my top five albums from 1965. I think it's in the top 10 or 15 albums of the 1960s. Um, I haven't done it. You know, I should do that. Um, and I think um, it's in the top just, I, I think Otis Redding is a top 100 artist. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think this is a top five soul album, De- definitely top five sixty soul album. You know, I, I, I put this ahead of Sam Cooke for me personally, I put it above the live with the Apollo. That's me personally. Yeah. Um, but you know, so this, uh, yeah, I, think, I think I do too. I would, I would put just because he, he lived long, longer enough to do more music. I would put, I would put James Brown's, you know, if we did like a 14 track greatest hits, I would put James Brown's greatest hits up against almost anyone. Um, but I, but I'm with you. I think, I think as an individual album, I think Otis blue is better than live at the Apollo. Yeah. And we've already said, you know, that's one of the great albums of all time. Therefore it follows, right. This is, you know, worthy of our list of top 100. Uh, uh, I mean, oddly we have to make the case like, Hey, you know, Rolling Stone, get this album back on the top 100. What's it do with that one one seventy eight? I mean, that's, that's an input, some respect on that record's name. 
Yeah. So, so that's wild. And, and again, because I the thing is, I think 75, 78, I think that's right. Mm-hmm. I, I think that, you know, in the the last quarter of a top 100, bottom quarter, I think that's right. I think that's fair. But certainly top 100. You yeah. Know? Yeah, I agree. Listener, what about you? What do you think? Uh, is is Otis Redding deserving of a top 100 album? If so, is it Otis Blue? Is it Dock of the Bay? Is it Live at the Whiskey A Go-Go? Um, is it something we didn't even talk about? Let us know. Reach out to us on Twitter at You Forgot One Pod, on Instagram at You Forgot One. Of course, our website is youforgotone.com. And Micaiah, everyone who's listening to this podcast, whether it's on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts or some RSS feed we're not even thinking of, what should they do? You should like follow subscribe to the podcast uh so when we drop new episodes they're you know right there ready for you to go um also um leave a five-star review um and if you really want to help us out you can write a review for people to see and that you know helps other people find the show and it lets us know what you're enjoying so we can continue to make the show uh, something that you enjoy listening to well listener um you've heard us talk a whole lot about otis blue and we have let you listen to every single song from that album. We're going to leave you now with the opening track of Otis Redding live at the Whiskey A Go-Go, I Can't Turn You Loose. Perfect choice.
Keep up your 